Hey, Brock, how are you? Doing well, John. How are you? Good. Our, well, so last week we talked about sponsor content. Aaron Marino did a video very similar to yours. So I think you are you are in line with where people are at. Where look, people got to do sponsor content. It's but yet to disclose it at the same time. That, that that really seemed to be his thing was just disclose. You know, the, some big channels don't do it, but it's best to be very clear with your audience. Yep, I, I think most people probably can understand that and agree with that. Um, it was interesting. You know, he didn't mention any channels, but you gotta wonder on some of these huge like vlog channels when they're using products or when they're showing things they got in the mail or whatever. Like, is it sponsored? I mean, you you kind of give them the benefit of the doubt and think if they didn't disclose it, then it's not. But he was kind of implying that it is sometimes. Yeah, I even just watched Casey Neistat did a vlog where he took his family to Sesame World or whatever the Sesame Street place is in Philadelphia. And at the end of the video, he said, this video is not sponsored or associated in any way. Like at a certain point, you have to disclose so much stuff because you never really know. So those are big channel problems. Though. Yeah, pro problems I'd like to have one day. <laughs> <laughs> but I really liked your video on the products that actually suck and are not worth a time. I, I, I have done the mental math on, you know, usually it costs this much money to get this, but you're only paying this when it pertains to the teeth whitening. I just, I really liked your breakdown of each of the products. And I agree with, I think you did five, right? I liked all five mm -hmm. of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's stuff that, uh, you know, I've personally tried. I think the thing that, I was trying to emphasize, and hopefully people understood, is that like a lot of that stuff, well, for pretty much everything is subjective. For example, Yeezys, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend my money on them. But if you're a collector and that's what you're into, it's not like a judgmental thing, you know. And so a lot of people are like, oh, I, I like my Yeezys, or like I just bought a Movement Watch, and it's like that's fine, you know. If you, if that makes you happy and you like it, that's really all that matters. But yeah, th those are. Those are products that I get asked about a lot, and then a few of them that I've actually really, I think, gave a fair chance, and they just didn't do anything for me. Totally agree. And and we've talked about before how polarizing watches can be. And you know, I had a, I had like a similar message on my MVMT video, but I think it's just uh, it's just education. Uh, I get a ton of people watch my Sprezzabox videos. I don't know, you know, they, there's a lot of people that just want to see what's inside of it, and so you know, it's a, to each his own for all of those things. Sure, yeah, and and yeah, it's totally it's totally education. That's that's kind of I think both of our goals. I mean, I did that video on how to avoid buying a cheap watch and I compared a Daniel Wellington to uh, the linear watch and I had just had a lot of comments like with any with any watch video, people saying, "Oh, these are both, you know, cheap Chinese watches." And it's like, "Yes, they're both in the affordable price range. They're both made in China, but to to say they're the same is just objectively wrong you know like they're made from different materials you know sapphire versus mineral and genuine leather versus full grain leather so i think it's it's hard to put anything out there without people only taking that one thing away from it and saying oh you're just saying this one's better than that one but what i'm really trying to say is you know this is what to look for and you have to use a comparison in your video otherwise i mean you can't just talk about it it makes more sense to show it you know so i don't know man it's tough <laughs> Our little niche, even at, even our uh, small scale, there's still a lot of subsections within there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you ever get asked about, because like, I know you've tried, um, you have a couple of Oliver Wick suits now, and you've done some pretty in-depth made-to-measure comparisons. Do people ever ask, like, just which is the best one? Like, if I'm going to get my first made-to-measure suit, which one should I get? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what people want to know for that or for dress shirts or the clothing subscriptions. And so I've tr- I've, that's what I've tried to address on each of those. You know, I, I really I just did a video today on my second Oliver Wick suit and extremely happy with that. I saw you got one, but I'm, I'm excited to see how you how you like that once you get the chance to open it. Yeah, I think we've both had really good results with uh, Oliver Wicks so far. I've got a few of their suits, and but you know, even with them though, like I mean, they're probably my favorite online made-to-measure suit suit brands. Even with them, it's still such a there's there's so many potential pitfalls with made-to-measure, especially online made-to-measure, that just because one person had success with one specific brand doesn't mean that you're going to, you know. And that's that's what I'm always trying to emphasize, like. You know, it's it's just uh, it's a complicated process making a custom suit for somebody that you've never seen. You know, so I think people just need to, you know, make sure to do their research and understand that some of these things are, you know, you're taking a, a, a small risk. Yeah, and with those, I mean, some people might not like, especially with Oliver Wicks, they have a very European styling and a European cut, and I love that. And then there's going to be people who think that that's too uh, trendy or they don't want that kind of cut, and so it's all. All subjective. Now, now you also did two weeks ago. You did a video on the two books that changed your life, and I always think about doing like a book club type of thing because I end up listening to a ton of audiobooks. Uh, I actually just finished two in the last week because I was driving to and from New York. Do you do you read? Like, what are your habits for for reading overall? Yeah, I I'd say I probably read more than I listen to audiobooks. Although I do, I listen to a ton of podcasts. But yeah, I, I do. I try to read one or two books a month. Usually, alternate between fiction and nonfiction, which I, I think both are very valuable and great ways to spend your time. But yeah, those those were those were two books. I don't know. You look back and you ever like go through your your uh, Audible or your Kindle and you, and you you're like, wow, I've actually you know I've got a lot of books on here, but a lot of them you don't really remember in detail, you know. But there are a couple for me that stand out that I'm like, all right, these actually stayed with me for years, you know. I don't know, do you have any books like that? Yeah, well, I would I would say in the past we've also talked about Pat Flynn. I think the amount of people who would reference Tim Ferriss Four Hour Work Week and Pat Flynn Smart Passive Income as catalysts or inspirations for the things they're doing today, I think that'd be a huge number because the, those two books, that that book and and Pat Flynn as well, have been hugely in, inspiring to me in the past uh, few years. Totally. Yeah, I I don't know if it, it seems like Smart Passive Income was really getting popular around the time that Tim Ferriss was also getting popular and released the 4-Hour Workweek. So yeah, for, for me, I, I agree those two things are almost like I was just discovering them at the same time and getting into to all of that stuff. So I was actually just listening to uh, the latest uh, SPI podcast with Jordan Harbinger from uh, Art of Charms. Really, really good listen. That's one of my favorite podcasts to queue up for yard work or anything else. I mean, even if it's not directly applicable to what I do, I think that the the message a lot of them have is is really strong. You did send me uh, an article about publishing and like the state of publishing and media umbrella media companies. I thought that was a pretty. I have to read it again, but I think it was a kind of an interesting, I guess, projection of of the industry. Yeah, that there's so there's a breakdown that Ben. Thompson does of how the media model has changed, and you can see it at a small scale on that that um, the article. I'll link to it 
in uh, in the show notes. But he basically shows he draws a lot of stick figures, but he shows the disaggregation between how it used to be the publisher, and then there was the flow between editorial and ads, and then the only way to reach those potential customers was to go through that that funnel. And now how it shifted to saying here's your Here's your bubble of Facebook and your bubble of Google and how the people with the money and the ads are going straight to those instead. And uh, just and that, that's happening all over the place. That's happening with taxi companies, with hotels, with Airbnb and with publishing and, and YouTube and everything else. And uh, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that I'm, I'm really interested in is the, the business model stuff. And that's why I've been excited to now do that J. Crew video. I just did the Jack Threads one this week where I kind of looked at why they probably fell apart. And uh, it seems like there's other people that are interested in that as well. Yeah, I, th I, I watched your Jack Threads video. I thought that was very interesting. Um, I, I think you should do more stuff like that, you know, especially since you you actually know about the industry and you have some uh, some insights that that other other people who are in the fashion world, but not necessarily like the business side of it and the analytics side of it, could. Uh, you know, bring to their videos. So, and that th those have gotten pretty good reception, right? Yeah, and uh, well, I mean, especially the Jack Threads one, where uh, there was a couple people that commented that they had bought stuff, and one guy said that he just filed a a claim with his credit card to try and get that back because he ordered and never came never came through. So, it's wow. it's a, it's a pretty big brand that a lot of people knew about, and then they just kind of disappeared. And so, yeah, Jack Threads is an interesting one. I have a few other ideas for uh, other companies, but yeah, I definitely like it. That's a whole different process. So, you, you know, the unboxing things are easy and quick. And then that one takes a little bit more research. You know, I can kind of flex my my very weak writing muscle to try and put together coherent thoughts, which is uh, it's a, I think it's a good discipline because I read so much of this stuff and, it, and you, you only retain it when you try to teach it or, you know, spread it in some way. And so that's helping me to be more conscious when I just passively read through things. That's so true. Yeah, that's really just a, a good mind exercise is to go through that process of researching and then distilling it into a loose script and then, you know, performing that script for your audience. And I think that's like, I don't know, it's very multifaceted. I think you did did a good job. Um, I was wondering how, how scripted it was or like if, if you're doing talking points or if you're actually writing out your script or how, how are you doing that with those types of videos? With the past two, I went through the process of here's so I'd like collect all the all of the articles that I wanted to reference. Then I would do bullet points to lay out the structure. So you know, with the Jack Threads one, it was I wanted to talk about their their starting. I wanted to talk about their growth. Wanted to talk about the funding. Wanted to talk about you know their customer acquisition model. And then I would go through each of those bullet points and flesh out a few sentences. Uh, I find that when I do, I when I personally do bullet points, I end up talking too much in a loose fashion that it makes it very difficult to edit. And mm. I don't think I'm very good at putting together coherent thoughts on the fly, but I'm good at jotting things down and then constructing that later. So with both of those, I've got like, I've got every paragraph was written out. And then I did a little bit of changes as I was recording. But when I try to do it freeform, it becomes way too difficult to try and put together an edit because I just uh, talk and talk and talk. Yeah, I've, I've been changing. Uh, I, I changed my method a little bit to basically write out like a an unedited script so it's almost stream of consciousness or it's not like a blog post where it's like really crafted it's it's more of just like getting the raw content out there and then I do it out loud once and then I hit record and I do each paragraph at a time and take a little pause 
um, you know, I have my phone with me, and it makes editing really easy. And then I basically just use that raw, it's almost a transcript at that point, um, in the video description. You know, I kind of edit it down. And that's that's been working well for the past, I don't know, few weeks, and it seems to be cutting down on the editing times. Like you said, if I just try to, like, totally freewheel it, it's like, it's just a mess, you know, to try to edit that. Well, and, and just like your, I watched your uh, your polo, your, your t-shirt video where you, you shot different brands. That almost seems like something you just did right off, you know, you pulled up the picture, you were able to talk about it, and then uh, have it there. Because a lot of this stuff just sits in our memory, and we can just talk about it. Yeah, I think there are certain certain types of videos, certain topics that are just pretty easy. Like, I mean, like that one, yeah, I wouldn't need. I, I had the pictures on my phone of like the the label of each of the items. So as long as I knew what it was called and what size it was and everything, what store it was from, it's pretty easy to look at the picture and just talk about the fit, you know. But uh, for something like today, like I my video today was how to be how to be attractive, and it, that was more of like a scripted kind of little bit of research and some points I had to hit. So I think ideally it'd be you know, you'd have maybe two or three different types of videos that you do, and they all fall into a certain template, and that way you're not reinventing the wheel every time. You know, I'm not there yet, but... <laughs> yeah, are you increasing your, your video output, it seems like? I'm trying to, yeah. I, I want to do two a week, um, if not more. It's, it's a balance. I mean, like, you know, that, that, that shirt video, someone else edited, edited that, actually, and I thought they did a great job. So that's just a quick trip to the mall, you know, a few minutes of recording, and then I send that to somebody. <laughs> Uh, so if I could do like one of those a week and then maybe one that, that I edit and uh, it's a little more produced, um, I'd be happy with that. That would be the first thing that I would stop doing is editing. Yeah. I hate hearing myself. I hate I, Even though the podcast, I, I don't think anybody likes to hear themselves on the phone or, or recording of themselves. But. Yeah, it's always a little weird. <laughs> the burden we bear. Do you do your own music in the videos? I always like the music that you pick in your videos. I... Uh, I actually signed up for a, a, a website called Epidemic Sounds, and it's it's a music library. Um, really, really good stuff. There's a very high bar in terms of like production uh, value. It's got all different genres you can browse and all this stuff. I heard about it from Peter McKinnon, that that guy, uh, mm -hmm. videographer, blogger, and yeah, it's like 15 bucks a month. For a while, I was I was getting my stuff from. Uh, royalty-free channels like Majestic Casual Color and some stuff from SoundCloud, but I don't know, it felt a little... I mean, I see a lot of big channels doing that, but it, it seemed a little risky to me. Like, I had one song that I used in a video, and then I tried to use it in another video uh, a couple weeks later, and someone had... Uh, s some audio distribution company had claimed a copyright on it. Um, it was a remix of, of a DJ, and... So when I uploaded the video, it was like, you can't, if you monetize this, the ad revenue is going to go to this company. Um, so I, I changed the song, and I was like, all right, I, I need to get some music that I can actually know that it's okay to use for the long term. Yeah, I mean, I watch Wendover Productions, and I mean, some of those channels that just use so much B-roll and footage, uh, and they sign up for whatever the content libraries they sign up for, but that, that ultimately just becomes a, a business expense because you got to watch your own butt. Yeah, I, what I don't understand is the channels like, take like Charisma on Command, or there's a guy, um, Evan Carmichael, and they use like clips from like news and, you know, photos from Google Images, and I mean, stuff that's clearly that they don't own the copyright to. And, and they're huge channels, you know, they're huge, multi million dollar businesses, 
how does that work? I mean, do you think they're just is a it's a calculated risk, or do you think they're buying media rights to this stuff, or they're just kind of hoping nothing happens? Well, I know with like images, you, you can get a Getty Images subscription, and then a lot of that stuff is covered under that copyright. I mean, a company like that that has millions, a million in revenue or more, has a lawyer on retainer, and they're making sure that they're not going to get demonetized. But uh, yeah, I know because it is like the news thing. I mean, I wonder if there's Creative Commons for news because it's, it's out there, it's broadcast, and they're just referencing it for entertainment purposes. Uh, yeah. That's a good question. More big channel problems. Yeah, more problems that we'd like to have one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, today we could talk to Brian. He's the founder of Kit Culture. We talked about his route from being a lawyer in LA to then uh, going out and starting to create his own casual wear. He's a pretty cool story, and we'll throw it over to him. Sounds good. Yeah. So I mean, I I, I think. Um, you know, I'm probably coming at this whole apparel business from a different place from some of the other people that you've talked to. But I can certainly sort of step back and, and take you through kind of my background and, you know, how this all kind of came to fruition. You know, originally I'm from the, the Boston area, grew up in Cambridge, Mass. And, uh, you know, I was a Northeast guy and, you know, one of four kids. So I was always pretty active as a kid, just doing various things. Uh, ended up staying staying in the Northeast for, for college. And my first job out of uh, out of college was actually teaching at a boarding school in Santa Barbara. Just ended up doing that because, you know, I was an English major in college and didn't really know what I wanted to do. That was a good first job. And, you know, I fell in love with California at that point. But after that, you know, teaching wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I ended up sort of thinking about, you know, something a little bit more practical and maybe something that paid a little bit more money. So I worked my way back east and uh, I went to law school at Boston University. You know, I just kind of missed California at that point. So, you know, when I graduated, I took a job at a law firm in, in L.A. doing, you know, mergers, acquisitions, corporate transactional stuff, which was great. I mean, I was making a decent living and and living in L.A. and, you know, definitely working really hard. But, but for a while, I was just kind of content to, to have a you know, interesting job and, and uh, you know, a good life in L.A. Yeah, I guess I never really sort of thought of myself doing that forever. I'm sure you guys know that the, sort of the lawyer lifestyle is, is not, always, not always ideal. But, you know, it, 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 it ended up doing it a lot longer than I thought. So, you know, I, I thought, oh, I'll do this for two years, and that turned into kind of five years. And, but what happened was I just sort of really started to reject that sort of model of, of work and life, you know, balance, and just the way that law firms worked, meaning you just you, know, you charge by the hour, basically. So the longer you were in the office working, the more money you were making for the firm. So I started to just kind of have tension with the people I was working for and started to think, you know, maybe this isn't what I want to do. I didn't really have a, an exit strategy, right? <laughs> which was you know, not, not always the best way to go about coming into conflict with, with people you're working for. You know, so I was working on this pretty big deal and I was on vacation with my wife and she was pregnant at the time. My boss was just saying, oh, you got to come back to the office. You got to work on this deal, da, da, da. And I just was like, you know what? This is not working for me. I, <laughs> I don't agree with this sort of philosophy whereas you know it was something certain that people there could have done but it was just more of a, a sense of like this is the way it works you need to this is how you know what being a lawyer is all about you need to come back and cancel your vacation and all that how you know, many years had you had you been a lawyer at that point about almost eight 
I started in 2006, and this was, I guess, towards the end of 2013. Definitely put in my time. So, you know, I, I survived for a while, I guess. So, like I said, I was longer than I, than I originally thought. You know, so actually, so they sort of came into conflict with my boss then, and then they laid me off sort of soon after that. This was right at the time that, you know, my wife was having our son, uh, who's now three. You know, it, was, it wasn't a wasn't stressful from a financial perspective, but it was certainly like, okay, I need to figure out what my next step is. So, you know, I was home and sort of helping, you know, my wife with, with the baby and I was doing a lot of cycling and running and was doing some, some triathlons at the time. You know, I always been, been pretty active, you know, I had some more time to kind of really go on some longer rides and was really getting into that. What I started sort of thinking about was, you know, I had all this cool, you know, uh, cycling gear and, and running gear that just fit me perfectly and lasted forever. I started thinking, you know, why doesn't my casual wear, why doesn't my, why doesn't my work, you know, apparel sort of satisfy me the same way? You know, I liked, you know, being a lawyer, I had, had enough money to sort of check out different brands. I was buying brands like, you know, Vince and Theory and, you know, John Barbados and, and brands like that, which are, you know, a little bit more high-end, but, but definitely, kind of, you know, more casual. And I love the style of, of, the, of, of their stuff, but, you know, after I'd worn it for a bit, it would just start to lose its shape and, and you could never wash it. So I started just to get frustrated with that sort of aspect of it. And then on the other hand, I had all this good active wear that would last forever. Didn't really have to worry about how well it fit me because with spandex you know it always sort of just conforms to your body you know at the same time i was never someone that was just going to wear gym stuff around you know i always cared you know a little bit about how i looked so i just started thinking about developing my own my own line of of, of really more casual wear that was more versatile and just could kind of do some of the same things that my active wear did i never really thought about doing active wear because i was satisfied with my active wear. I thought it was great. I mean, especially once you've gotten a little bit more serious about it and you start to learn about some of the more niche brands that, that have a lot of good stuff. So it was always more of like, okay, how can I improve my casual apparel? Just being in LA, started poking around. First, you know, went on the internet and I was like, oh, let me find some fabric places and I'll just go check them out. So I would literally just go show up at these places in downtown LA, you know, knock on the door, we'd have to sort of buzz in through the gate because the fashion di district in LA is not not always the best part of town. So I just started knocking on their door and, and I was surprised. Like they were very helpful. They were very nice. And they would sort of take me around their showrooms. You know, I'd buy samples. I'd take them home, just start playing with them and thinking about what I could do with them. So I realized that there was all this great fabric out there. And I just it was like, why can't I take some of this material with, with, uh, with spandex in it and sort of turn it into you know, casual pants or hoodies that, you know, look a little bit more stylish than, you know, a gym hoodie, uh, something more closer to what I was wearing with like a Vince or a Theory or something like that, you know, more durable, more versatile. And I think it's interesting um, because you definitely occupy, right right now, you occupy a space that is tough to find. So I'm sure you were looking for something like, you wouldn't say upscale casual, but, you know, active casual, which is which is where you're at. And, I, and you can't really find that. Uh, it's interesting that it led you right into the raw material spectrum uh, as you were trying to solve yeah. that issue. Yeah, no, it was. It was it, I, I, I was looking around at what other people were trying to do in this space. And it, it, it typically was more of coming from the, from like an active wear perspective where you have like a, I don't know, like a, like Lululemon was trying to get into men's wear at the time. It was still new for them. 
and it was still it was all generated from okay this is active wear that you can wear maybe in other aspects because it's high quality because it's you know a v-neck t-shirt or something like that that was but i but i did feel like i was i was i had something unique and coming from it from this sort of casual perspective and just sort of saying trying to make casual wear better so you know so yeah so so starting from the the raw materials like you said was was i think just from the ground up was a good way to kind of get your hands dirty with it it was a little trickier finding a sewing manufacturer i mean I, I i never thought seriously about having stuff made abroad i just couldn't really wrap my head around it everything you know i was doing this on my own and with no background in the, in the fashion industry the idea of just contacting someone in you know asia or you know south america a seemed really very risky and b i didn't connect with it in terms of you know i always knew i wanted to build a brand that I would have thought was cool and that I would have thought was authentic and was doing something interesting and, and that, that I could relate to just on a, on a personal level and just having some massive factory in, in Asia, you know, make my stuff. It just never, never felt right to me. So I was always more, I was always focused on finding someone and I was fortunate. I was in LA so I could, there were tons of factories around. Most of the people I talked to that were in the fashion industry were like, Oh, you know, you know, we've looked at, domestic manufacturing, but they just don't have the capacity. Um, they don't have the technology to do certain things. Um, it's hard to find the skill level. And so, you know, there's, if you're a big brand, there's very real reasons that people don't do more domestic manufacturing. But for me, I was like, well, none of those things really matter. All that matters to me is I can find someone that can work with me that does high quality sewing and that can sort of sit down with me and be like, all right, here's sort of how the process works and, and can kind of walk me through it a little bit. So, you know, I just started meeting with people in Southern California and found, you know, fortunately I found a really good factory that you know, had someone on staff could help me work, you know, develop the patterns and do the prototyping. And so I went in, I'm just, you know, I had the fabrics that I found sort of existing kind of clothes that I like. And I was like, here's what I want to do. And here's the fabrics that I want to, I want to use. And they would be like, well, you, know, you can't use this fabric for pants or, you know, that's not really going to work for this reason or that reason. So it was just a process. And I was actually surprised when I did come up with some prototypes, actually, of how much they conformed to what my idea had been. And I was like, all right, this this is actually a thing now. You know, I have some, some products in my hand that I started wearing and I was like, I like it. You know, I consider myself to be a decent judge of quality and what looks good. And, you know, obviously everyone has their own personal taste, but seemed like something that would appeal to a, to a certain uh, group of people. So, you know, then in, in some ways, I don't want to say that was the easy part, but that was like, that was the idea that I had was to make something. So you don't really have, you know, you don't, you said, you said it yourself, you don't have a background in fashion or, or design, but you've, you've always, I mean, I was surprised, you know, you've, you said Vince and John Marvados, you know enough to uh, know what's out there. Did you try and partner with a designer or some team around you to, to get this out there? Or, or you're just kind of spearheading this and, and running as fast as you can to, uh, to you know, prototype yourself and, and work with the factory. What was that process like? You know, so that was, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I I did think originally that I would partner with the designer because I, like you said, I had no background in the industry. So it seemed like that was the right thing to do. But I, so what I did is I actually contacted a few 
few designers that had heard about or uh, just found on you know LinkedIn or you know some other networking and had a few conversations with them and they were you know met there some of them were really cool guys and and very talented and I'd seen some of the stuff they'd done and I was like oh that looks great but at the end of the day it was I wasn't willing to give up any control over how the original products came out. So even though I could sort of convey my ideas to to someone who's a designer, you could already see them in the original conversation sort of taking over the idea. And I felt like, especially people that were had an extensive background in the industry, I could you could already see the sort of industry defaults coming into play. And I, I always wanted to come at this from a totally fresh perspective. Felt that once I kind of gave up some of the control of the, the designs, that it would just turn into something that was not totally mine and something that I could totally control anymore because once you kind of give up that control then it would be hard for me to say to that person like oh I don't like this for this reason and they would just have such a more depth of knowledge to say this is why people do this and here's the reasons why and it would probably make sense maybe that you know, maybe that's smart but you know for me I just I wasn't willing to give up that control so what I what I did have to do really was just work with factories that had someone, you know, like the one the first factory I used, they had someone who had been to design school, right, who actually wanted to be a designer himself, but, but his job was not to be involved creatively in any of the sort of prototyping. It was really just more of technical aspects of, you know, designing a pattern, coming up with the prototypes and so forth, you know, and then the sort of the, coming up with the grading and marketing and the sizing and all that stuff. So I needed someone to do, to help me with that. But from a pure design idea perspective, I always wanted to control it. So that was something I thought about, but but never never really pursued. Stay in charge, you know. And then when, like I said, when the stuff when I came up with the first prototypes, I was like, hey, this I, I think this works. Maybe someone who's with years and years of design experience could sort of say, well, I would have done this differently, or that differently. But you know, I knew that I wore it and I, and I liked it. And people that I talked to originally were like, hey, this is great. You know, this looks cool. So so I had these, I had a few products, and then. You know, then then the sort of the real challenging part of the of the business starts. Then it's just a question of like, all right, how do I get people excited about this? Which you know is hard for any any person starting out in any. You know, I don't care what business you're doing. That was going to be my next question. Is just like so when you when you had your first um, inventory, you had your first products, and and you had some inventory. What did you do to first of all? you know, let people know that this was a thing, you know, that your brand was out there and, and you were selling products and get people excited. And, and, uh, cause I'm sure there's a little bit of education on why you would want this type of product. Um, but then there's also just like the general marketing, just getting your website out there. So what, what did you do at the very beginning? Yeah. So the beginning, uh, you know, I did have, I did put a website together right away just because nowadays it's very easy to do. I was using, uh, you know, Shopify, but there's, you know, whatever, WooCommerce or any, any, any of those e-commerce or providers, you know, work great. So it's pretty easy to get something that looks representative. So I did a photo shoot in LA, which again, it's great to be in LA because, you know, there's a million photographers that have studios. So I did a photo shoot, put up a website, but really that wasn't my original sort of focus of my marketing what I could be my original idea and that's we can get into you know one of the other questions you guys mentioned was you know what's something that you failed at and, and this I would maybe put into that category although I, you know you learn so much from these things it's hard to say that they're a failure but my original idea was target endurance athletes specifically and try to be become sort of carve out this niche as like this and ca- casual wear for endurance athletes because that's sort of where I was coming from and I knew that I could kind of enter that 
seen and, and talk to people and connect with them. So I started going to different races, which, you know, nowadays there's a million of them, you know, running races, triathlon, cycling races, you know, ocean festivals, whatever. And I had a tent from Costco, you know, like a 10 by 10 tent. So you just pay a couple hundred bucks to get a 10 by 10 space at these expos, right? Where people go to the race and they, after the race, before the race, they just poke around all these different booths. So I was sort of like, well, if I connect with this audience and then become that casual, like a casual wear kind of endurance athlete, then grow from there. Because I, I didn't know how competitive space was. But my idea was sort of try to become like what you see with all the surfwear brands, which now are so, you know, mainstream, right? But they started as for surfers and then they kind of branched out into something more, something broader. So that was my idea. So the problem with that was that when you're targeting like a specific audience like that, but you don't actually do or provide a product for that hobby that they're doing, it's a it's a harder leap for them to make. It's like, well, basically you're just making casual clothes, right? It's like, yeah, well, but it's sort of targeted towards people like you and this and that. And it did resonate, but when you're coming at them in sort of the space where they're really thinking about running or cycling or whatever, uh, you know, climbing or whatever sport they're doing, and it doesn't actually sort of further their pursuit of that, it's not like an obvious connection. Even though I made some really good connections with people. And I started selling my, my stuff in this, in this store called Triathlon Lab, which is in LA, which is like a triathlon-focused store. So there was some success with that. It really was not resonating the way that I that I wanted it to. And then what I would realize that the people that I, that were, I was connecting with at these places were more just guys that were in their 20s, more generally interested in, in being active and that type of thing, but not necessarily like hardcore about you know, these sports where they're looking for spending all their money on, you know, a better bike or a better bike gear or better, you know, so it was more of a general application that, that I was connecting with. You're largely bootstrapping this. What, uh, what made you go out to Kickstarter? I, I saw you had a successful Kickstarter uh, about the middle of last year. Yeah. So that was after I'd been doing the, um, the, the, the races and I was, and then I realized that I, I, I needed to do more, sort of a pure, just kind of e-commerce online sort of business. Started focusing more on my website, did, you know, higher quality photos and put together a video. And then it's just a natural sort of, you know, I think everyone starting a business these days sort of thinks about sort of the crowdfunding avenue. And for me, I probably didn't plan it out as much as I should have. Really, it was more of a way for me to connect with people that already had heard about what I was doing or friends and my network and all that and, and, and sort of give them an opportunity to be like, all right, here's the point where I, I, I can jump in and be a part of this. When you just have a website and you're selling products, people say, oh, that's cool. And then they, they browse away to something else. But when you're really targeting like a, a, a crowdfunding campaign and you're saying, you know, we have this many days to raise this much money, it sort of forces people that were maybe interested before or obviously, you know, a broader audience as well to kind of be like, all right, I need, I need to do this now. And also because I want to help help this guy out, help his brand get going. It was uh, definitely a learning experience. I mean, I think there's a whole underbelly of crowdfunding that's <laughs> cropped up with sort of the marketing agencies and so forth that will approach you once they see that you have a campaign up. 
and they know that you're sort of desperately trying to raise money in a, in a very brief period of time and they have ways like, you know we have ways to give you backers and stuff but you have to give us x percent of you know the funds you raise and you're saying well I, I, they do actually bring me this much money then that's actually not a bad deal but then when you actually look at sort of the fine print of what they're offering it's actually like a, a terrible deal sort of preying on these you know poor entrepreneurs <laughs> trying to raise money so it was, it was an interesting experience but ultimately successful and just another way to drum up sort of excitement about the brand now i so i pulled back from sort of targeting just kind of niche sports stuff and then more just general act people that are active you know people that care about the way they look people that like a more of a form fit to their to their, even their casual clothes whether that's slimmer fitting pants with, with with stretch or you know tops that are just a little bit more of a, a trim profile so yeah so then you know the, the, the next part was reaching out to, to guys like you and and being like here's my brand and and what do you guys think and hopefully you'll you'll say nice things about me and and uh, all your your followers get excited about it, and that's sort of the way it works these days with uh, you know e-commerce brands. I have a question about pricing because um, your stuff is priced, I think, very reasonably. So how how did you decide on that? Because if you look at some of I guess brands that have similar value propositions like Outlier, Ministry of Supply, like their stuff is pretty expensive. So how how did you decide on your price, like for your pants, for example? Yeah, I, you know, I actually started out with a slightly higher price point than I have now because I was thinking, like I said, I did it was in a store in, in L.A. and 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 um, it's sort of the traditional model is that you know it cost me ten dollars to make a shirt and you know I sell it to a store for twenty dollars and, and maybe they charge forty, you know, some sort of version of that and. I just was never comfortable with that price point for my uh, products because that's not really what I wanted to pay. I mean, like I like I told you before, I was sort of buying more expensive stuff when I was working as a lawyer, et cetera. You know, usually it was on sale or or, <laughs> or marked down quite a bit, even though even though I had the ability to pay more. I always felt comfortable in sort of the sixty to eighty, maybe ninety dollar area, and so that's kind of always where I wanted to be. And so that was part of the, the decision to go strictly, you know, to be a direct consumer, you know, e-commerce brand was that the only way I can price things the way that I feel is appropriate and that what I think my target audience, what they want to pay is to get it into that range. And then in order to do that, I need to sort of reach out. I need to just sell directly to people. So really the, I guess the inspiration, maybe not the right word, but, you know, some someone like Everlane, you know, the way they price their products is, I would say, comparable Although they make stuff abroad, so their their production costs are are cheaper than mine are. You know, I can still make a profit if as long as I'm selling directly to people. So you know, the outliers and 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 ministry supply. You know, I you'd have to. I'm always amazed at how they people come up with these price points for their product because it's it's just super expensive. You know, and there is a certainly an audience for that price range, but it was never what I envisioned. You know, my brand. Uh, being about, I was always more, you know, guys that weren't necessarily serious about, you know, clothes, and that just weren't willing to pay north of a hundred dollars, you know, for a sweatshirt uh, or even two hundred dollars for a pair of pants. So I just said, okay, that's where I need to end up, and how do I get there? So I sort of almost worked backward from that perspective. And then I, you know, certainly there's other uh, business decisions that you have to make to make that work, whether that's spending less on marketing. Um, you know, obviously right now I don't have a lot of overhead costs or, you know, personnel costs. So 
you know, for now, I think it's sustainable. And I think certainly even, even though my production costs will always be high, you know, making things here, you know, as you increase your volume, you know, the, the, the costs do come down a bit. It's really a question of the ability to do that now because I can sell online is what allows me to, to keep the, the costs in a, in a place where I find, you know, that works for my brand. I mean, I really align with, it seems like your message is really like a vendetta against cargo shorts and slubby t-shirts that typically see people wearing outside of, you know, outside the gym or anything else. And that was really what, what drew me to this. You know, you said, you, you know, you're now reaching out to some people like Brock and myself. Like, what do you see as some of your, your big targets for 2017 as you try to, uh, you know, take this, uh, you know, one of the articles that I read, it said that you were really focused on the Southern California guy or the California guy. Like, what are your next goals as you kind of head out of that that niche? Yeah, I mean, I think every day is really just about drawing in new people. And so the, the goals for this year are still about getting a brand name out there, right? So I don't have specific sales targets, you know, for this year. You know, it's really the way I'm going to evaluate this year. It's still really about getting people excited about the brand. It's about building your subscriber list. It's about honing the message, really honing that that sort of really communicates to people quickly, right? Because nobody's got a lot of time to just try to figure out what this brand is about. So it's really about honing the message, sort of thinking always about what the brand is about. You know, and I found that that is what leads to success for me as a, as a young brand. It's not about, all right, let me spend all my time with pricing strategies and sales strategies and doing a bunch of Facebook ads and that type of thing. It's really more about, all right, I'm going to keep developing what this idea is, what this brand is. And people really respond to that more than they do, you know, you know, an Instagram ad saying that, you know, get $50 off when you buy, when you spend $100, you know, and those types of things. And, and I, I certainly do that stuff, but I try to spend more of my time, you know, developing good content, you know, thinking about new products that people will be excited about. So that's really still where I, I feel like my time is, is better spent. You know, being able to bootstrap the company now allows me to do that. I mean, certainly there'll be a time, you know, where if, if, if I want to scale it to a certain, at a certain point where I need to sort of shift it to more of a, uh, you know, making it more attractive to outside capital and, 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 and that sort of thing. You know, I always say that, you know, bootstrapping it is very stressful because it's your own money at risk. It sort of keeps you in control and allows you to make decisions for your brand that feel, you know, like the, like the right thing to do at this time. I love getting up in the morning and thinking about sort of what I'm going to do that day to kind of draw in new people or, you know, a, a new idea for photo shoot. You know, I, I work with some really good photographers and video people in LA that understand what I'm trying to do creatively. So just thinking about, you know, developing those ideas and, and, and developing new products. And that's still really where most of my attention is. And I found that that leads to the best, the best growth at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. What you know, this is your first business. Is there some uh, business or or lesson as an entrepreneur that you found going through this process now over the last year that you would kind of tell somebody to watch out for? Yeah, I would say the best the best lesson I I would give at this point would be just to pace yourself, because I think when you read about startups and you read about um, you know new businesses, you you typically read about these crazy success stories, whether it's like on TechCrunch or, or, or somewhere like that, where it's like 
the story will be about, oh, these guys started this business, and within two months, they had, you know, some great media coverage, and then, you know, they raised some money right away, and they're going to do a million dollars the first year, and everything's great, you know, and you're like, wow, I guess that, is that what a successful business is? Is that what needs to happen in order to be successful as a, you know, as an entrepreneur? And I, and the answer is definitely not. I think you you feel rushed when you start, and I mean, obviously you have capital limitations and so forth. So there is a sense of you know I need to make this work quickly, but I think you make really bad decisions when you think along those terms. Meaning, like you say, okay, well I need to spend a lot of money on advertising because if people don't hear about this brand and get excited about it in the next three months, I'm going to run out of money, and you know it's good. at that point it's not even going to be new anymore. And no one's going to be excited about it, and that'll be it. You know, so I think there's a sense of need to make things happen right away. If you look at great brands and the way that they were built, that's just not how it happened. You know, I mean, if if you can grow your business that way, I mean, that's great. <laughs> it's certainly an easier way to go. You know, to have things happen. But I mean, the reality is, is that it's just hard, and it takes a lot of time. And you just need to kind of latch on to the, to the more of the realistic stories that are more realistic for you. You know, I was like. Patagonia story or you know I just read the Phil Knight you know the Nike founder you know and you realize that this is a, a process and you got to be in it for the long haul you know they, they sort of have to control your expectations so that's sort of the, the lesson that I that I've learned yeah what really shocked me about shoe dog is that Phil Knight really didn't make any money for like 10 years I mean he was just I know right? he was pouring it back into the company and then he couldn't you know he was having trouble buying inventory and then the bank was I mean shoe dog was fascinating in itself just for showing how persistent that guy was to just really try and get Nike going and you don't think of Nike in that way but in the 70s that's that's how they were right yeah and it was a different different world then too and then you know you certainly have to yeah, I think he had raised a bunch of money from his, uh, a bunch of money, but but some amount of money from his family as well, and you know all that stuff creates stress of a different sort. You know, it's like, oh great, I don't, I don't owe the bank any money, but you know, he owed his dad money, which is, you know, is, it creates its own sort of tension points. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I think very cool story. Excited to see how you uh, progress throughout the year here and. We'll point people at the Kit Culture website if you have any anything else you want to plug while you're here. No, I would say just check out the site and, and obviously, you know, Instagram is good good forum for us. So find us on Instagram and, and Twitter. Um, but yeah, just check out the site and get in touch. And it's basically me. So, you know, people sometimes feel hesitant to reach out because they don't know, you know, who it is that they're reaching out to. But I would tell you that I read everything whether it's a comment on, on social media or, you know, an email to the sort of the general account. You know, I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions about, you know, whatever it is about the brand, about, you know, the manufacturing process, about sizing, you know, minutia, uh, too much minutia for me to, to get back to you on. So I love, love connecting with people. Awesome, Brian. Well, hope people check you out here and very cool story. We'll watch you for 2017. Excellent. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for listening to the Buttoned Up Podcast, a collaboration between John Shanahan of The Cavalier and Brock McGough of Modest Man, and we will see you next week.